Hello and welcome to the Chatting with Charlie podcast, where we discuss nature, adventure and everything in between. You can find me on Instagram at charliepage.img, and all my wildlife photography workshops and tours are at charlieswildlifephotography.com. But now let me introduce to you this week's guest. He's worked on some of the most incredible nature documentaries the world's ever seen, including Blue Planet 2, Our Planet, A Perfect Planet and a whole load more. It was an absolute privilege to get an insight into his world. It's the amazing Mr. Alex Vale. Alex, thank you for joining me on the podcast today, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Nice to nice to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Nice. Absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. So you grew up on Lizard Island, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, tiny little island um, on the Great Barrier Reef, north of Cairns. And yeah, my, my parents run a little research station up there um, called Lizard Island Research Station. And uh, yeah, moved there when I was four years old. So what was that like growing up there, man? Were you always in the water, out looking for things? Yeah, it was a pretty, a pretty amazing childhood, really. I, I feel super lucky. Um, so yeah, it's this beautiful little sort of tropical island, I guess. It, it's it's quite it's quite barren in a way, actually. Like it's got lots of rocks and sort of rolling grassy plains on it, but then. Then, but it's 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 beautiful in its own way. It's not your sort of typical idyllic tropical island with palm trees so much. But then around it, it's just surrounded by by coral reefs basically. So, I spent so much of my childhood, yeah, going snorkeling, um, trying to catch the big monitor lizards that live there, <laughs> um, and just just generally loving um, loving being out in nature. So is that where you sparked that sort of interest for wildlife and nature, do you think, just from a kid straight away, just being in that surrounding? Yeah, de- definitely. I, I, I think I think you could have gone either way from having a childhood like I did. Like you could either, you know, grow up to, you know, run as far away from nature as you possibly could. <laughs> um, or, you, you know, you could plunge sort of headlong into it. And that was, that was kind of the way I went, I guess. Um, so I was... So, so this so this research station I grew up on, um, it's uh, it, a, a really like crass way of putting it is that it's a hotel for scientists, but it's it's not a hotel. It's so much more than a hotel. Like it's a place where scientists from all around the world come, and it's got um, boats and scuba equipment and aquaria facilities where they come and do all their different sorts of research projects. So that was one of the the more interesting things about my childhood was I got to meet all of these amazing scientists from all over the world pretty much all of them marine biologists because that's what you know that the lizard island's really good for um and so yeah i was just exposed to all these different ideas of these different scientists and always really liked hearing about what they were doing and uh and that's that's how i sort of yeah got my sort of first direction in life i guess which was to go and become a marine biologist slash zoologist and obviously growing up around the barrier reef and you know obviously a sad topic but it's declined so much in recent years and i know that you actually filmed the the bleaching of the corals in the great barrier reef how was that as an experience because i could imagine it's important to show it you you know you're not happy but you feel like it's your need to show that to people 
But then, of course, you know, this reef that you've grown up with, and I'm sure you've seen it change over the years, like how, how was that as an experience? And also, could you explain a little bit about what coral bleaching is as well for people that may not know? Yeah, totally. You, um, I think you hit the nail absolutely on the head about how the, the, the feeling of it was. But um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just rewind a little bit first. And as you said, I'll explain a little bit about what coral bleaching is. So, so corals are animals. They're, they're, they're made up of polyps, which are basically upside down jellyfish. Um, they, they do eat sort of small little um, plankton, small particles out of the water. But mostly what they do is they they get energy from the sun they, that they photosynthesize. And, and the way that they do that is they have these little algal cells that live inside them and they're called zooxanthellae. So these zooxanthellae sort of live harmoniously inside the coral polyps and they give the coral most of its energy to make these gigantic structures like, like the Great Barrier Reef, which you can see from space. But the, the issue is that, that the zooxanthellae have a very like narrow temperature range that they can live happily in. And so coral reefs are mostly in pretty stable sort of temperature environments, like very tropical, very warm, but it, uh, the, the actual difference in water temperature is, is not massive. And so these, the, these algae, these zooxanthellae are living actually very close to their sort of upper limit of the temperature that they can tolerate. And so if the temperature just gets a little bit hotter, even just half a degree to a degree for a couple of weeks to a month, then these zooxanthellae, the little plants inside the coral, they start producing this toxin and it, it starts poisoning the coral basically. And so the, the, the polyp has to eject this zooxanthellae um, in order to avoid being poisoned. And the thing is that this, this plant, this zooxanthellae, is what gives the coral all of its amazing color, you know, these blues and greens and oranges. So it ejects this plant. And so because that was what was giving it its, its color, that the coral goes white, like just absolutely bone, bone white. And as well as losing its color, that was what provided it with most of its food. I think it's about 90%, something like that. And, uh, and so that means that the coral can't live for very long without this zooxanthellae. So if, it, you know, if it's gone for too long, more than a, a, few, you know, a few weeks really, then the coral just starts to die. And then you're just left with these brown, lifeless reefs. And, and yeah, you, you know, coral bleaching, like there's, there's fluctuations in temperature each year in, in, you know, in the ocean around coral reefs, but with um, climate change, with you know, the world getting generally warmer, um, this is happening more and more often. And in 2016 and 17, I think it was, the GBR had some really big bleaching events. It was terrible, like around Lizard Island, in some places, like 80% of the corals uh, died, wow. which was just absolutely heartbreaking. Like these were, these were places that I had, you know, grown up with and spent so much time snorkeling and diving on. I'd, I'd done a lot of my PhD research on one of these reefs and you, you just, you just knew every little nook and cranny, like you, you knew individual corals because you'd swum around them so many times. And then you just see this field of white and it's, it's like, it, it is actually quite beautiful in a way because before they actually go white, they go really bright highlighter colors and that's that's actually i think that's them trying uh, tr producing some sort of 
sunscreen, I believe, is what the highlighter color is. But it's, it's this amazing sort of show. But that's just before they go white and then just before they die, basically. Their last hurrah. And so it's their last hurrah, exactly. It's like a fireworks show. And it's like one of the most beautiful, terrifying things I've ever seen. And, um, yeah, so I filmed that for Blue Planet 2. And then I think it was a year or maybe two later, I also filmed it in another spot on the GBR for, for Our Planet, the Netflix series. And yeah, like, like, like you said, it's just this, this weird feeling of, because you're out there in order to film this. And so, you know, it's a success when you've, when you filmed it, but it doesn't feel like a success at all because you've just watched this place that you love die. <laughs> So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, my dad speaks about going to, uh, going scuba diving in the Maldives 30 years ago and how he describes it compared to how I went scuba diving a couple of years ago in Malaysia. He was like, I went off with all these colors and da, 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 da. And I was like, I wish I could say the same thing. There was some beauty, but it, a lot of it was just like white. And, and it's crazy how quickly that happens, you know, like how long the world's been around for and within just, you know basically a second in time and it's just you know it's it's really scary 100 percent. like yeah you're completely right it's um it's and you know in that as you say like the last 30 years there's there's photos actually from like at, at low tide actually at lizard island so when a lot of the corals are exposed out out in the air um and there's these photos from just right out in front of the research station it's just amazing coral cover that same area today is like there's a lot of dead and brown and it's it's these these shifting baselines that people talk about so it's um you know what was considered sort of normal 30 years ago you know compared to what's considered normal now you know like what we might consider normal like oh you know i don't know 30 40 percent coral cover whereas they would have considered like you know 90 percent coral cover normal so it's just through the generations this what's considered normal is is sort of changing and and not not in a good way in general yeah. so i don't mean to sound so depressing that way no i mean i knew that it's, you know, it's I, not great. I brought it up i knew that was you know it's an important conversation to have if not a nice one um moving on to you though so you went to uni am i right in saying that you studied animal behavior at uni yeah so i um in undergrad uni in um, James Cook University in Australia, I did marine biology and zoology. And then I did animal behaviour for my for my PhD over in, in Cambridge in the UK. Mate, that, I didn't go to university. If I could go back now, maybe if I knew animal behaviour was something I could study, maybe I would have done it. Did you know at that point that you wanted to be a wildlife cameraman? No, I had absolutely no idea. Um, I kind of, the main thing that I knew was biology I guess or you know being a scientist just because that those were the people that I'd been surrounded by and so to me you know if you loved nature and being in the outdoors that's what you did you you, you went and you became a you know marine biologist or a zoologist um, and I was actually really interested in sort of terrestrial you know like land things as well so I went off and I I, I volunteered for one of the scientists who worked on lizard and volunteered for them um, on their their vervet monkey project over in South Africa and then later on went and, and got a, a job um, working on leopards actually down in um, in South Africa as well um, with the Wildlife Conservation Society so I just 
I really loved, you know, the, the science of animals, you know, whether it be in the water or on land. Um, yeah. And then I, I went a long way through, I guess, the, the education process. So spent uh, four years in undergrad uni in Australia doing marine biology and zoology and then got a, uh, a, a Gates Cambridge scholarship to go over and do my PhD over at Cambridge. And that was all on um, on sort of fish intelligence and sort of comparing fish intelligence to other animals that, you know, we typically think of as much smarter than fish. Um, and that was, it was a really interesting four years, actually. I, I, I learned a heck of a lot. Yeah, wow. Fish intelligence, that's an interesting one, man. So... So what was it then that made you want to become a wildlife cameraman? Because I know for me and loads of other people, you know, a big inspiration growing up is the David Attenborough documentaries. Were they something that you watched, you know, throughout your life or when you were younger? Totally. I've, I've, always, I've always loved Attenborough documentaries. You know, he's absolutely the man. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, his, <laughs> the documentaries that he is narrating, in my opinion, are, are the best. And, oh, mate, um, it's not an opinion and... that's a fact that's, <laughs> that's a fact yeah 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 he's a world treasure <laughs> um yeah so yeah for sure I'd, I'd always watch his documentaries growing up and it, it was it was weird I remember I remember watching some of them and um there was one in particular that stood out in my head which is the um is planet earth one the mountains episode and, and the, the, the making of section of that. I always loved those making ofs, you know, seeing how, you know, the camera teams, you know, captured these sequences. And it was about the snow leopard, that one. And it just really spoke to me. Um, I think because I absolutely loved mountains and it just seemed like the most amazing adventure. And I remember watching the, the camera people and thinking, wow, like what an amazing job that would be. And, and at the time, I, I actually, I really... I really wrote it off. I, I didn't, didn't even think of it. Oh, you know, that's something I could do in, in my mind. That was something that other people did that, you know, you sort of had to go and study as a camera person for a long time. And, you know, I don't know, grow up in England or I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't even think that was, that was something you could do. So, you know, I kept going with my science and stuff. And, uh, and I, there was aspects I really loved about the science. Like I love, you know, learning about animals and trying to work out why they do what they do. But there were aspects of it that really weren't for me, I guess. Um, it was just just so much detail, I think. And, and you know, you, you get so very specific in science, you know, like sort of, you know, I guess that, so I did these interesting experiments and um, observations out in the field of this cooperative hunting interaction for my PhD of how trying to work out, you know, what fish understand about cooperation. But it just felt like everything was just becoming more and more narrow. And you sort of spent so much time sort of thinking and pontificating about things. And it, it, I was, I felt much more hands-on. I, I really liked just being out there, being hands-on with equipment. And so I decided that, you know, while I love science, there were aspects of it that weren't for me. And then, to be honest, I was really trying to work out what on earth I was going to do <laughs> um, with, with my life. And um, yeah, and I, I'd, I'd always loved photography. Um, so stills photography um, that I'd, I'd sort of been into that 
not not in a not in a super dedicated way, but I'd always really enjoyed doing it ever since I was sort of a late teenager, I guess. Like I had a pretty pretty average camera to start with, just like a little point and shoot rolly, I think it was. And uh, and then I like you know slowly like got an SLR, and then I got a better SLR and a couple more lenses, and that was all while I was doing science and working for the Wildlife Conservation Society, and I just enjoyed taking pictures of wildlife just as a as a hobby, basically. And um, so, yeah, I always enjoyed that. And then I, the other thing I enjoyed doing was these, I did a couple of these sort of sponsored expeditions. So we sort of we came up with these crazy ideas. Like one of them was paddling a sea gypsy dugout canoe around this island group in Sulawesi. And we, we went and we got that sponsored by Australian Geographic and Pelican Cases and a few other things. Like we didn't get a lot of money for it, but we got enough to go you know, to pay for it, basically, to pay for this sort of crazy adventure. And then we wrote it up in a magazine. And I, I really enjoyed doing that kind of thing, like bringing these sort of adventures and nature to people. And so I guess all of that came together when, yeah, I sort of finished my PhD and I was trying to work at what on earth am I going to do? And, um, yeah, and then it sort of, then I somehow found my way into camera work, I guess. Um, yeah, that's where it all started. Yeah, and then you went on and did um, a scholarship, right, at the BBC Natural History Unit, um, which is, for people that don't know, basically the mecca of wildlife films. Um, what were some of the first things you worked on? And have you noticed the technology, has it changed quite a lot since then, or is it pretty much the same stuff? So I've, yeah, so I, the first projects I worked on were pretty much all underwater, because that was, that was my background. I'd done a lot of scuba diving. Um, so I, I started, well, I, my first project I worked on was David Attenborough's Great Barrier Reef. I only worked on that a little bit. And then the first main one was Blue Planet 2. So I, I got super lucky um, getting to get in, involved in Blue Planet 2. Um, a, a lot thanks to my, my good friend, Yoli Bossiger and Jonathan Smith and, and a few really nice people at the BBC. And it was, I guess my foot in the door was the fact that I, I knew a lot about really interesting um, fish behaviors because I'd been working on fish behavior and intelligence. And so how this, this group of fish hunts cooperatively with octopus and they, they really wanted to film this as a sequence. And, um, and I was already sort of, I'd been working in, you know, doing some, actually, so I'd, I'd done smaller camera work projects before that um, sort of trying to teach myself how to do it basically. And so when Blue Planet 2 rolled around, um, I'd, I'd already sort of made myself a little show reel. I had a very basic idea of, of how, to, how to do some camera work. And so, yeah, that, they gave me the opportunity to initially just film, try and film sort of the rare behaviours, basically, because I was living out on Lizard Island. I had really good access to the ocean out there. So I could spend the time... Um, you know filming these things and then yeah then I guess they gave me sort of more and more responsibility to film different parts of it and uh, yeah and then it kind of snowballed from there so that was that was my start in the industry I guess was Blue Planet 2 and I am forever grateful to those people that took a punt on me (laughs) Um, and um, yeah so that was that was all underwater basically and then but I'd always really loved being above the water as well and so started sort of you know 
trying to, I, I, I already knew a little bit of above water, you know, camera work, but I started trying to teach myself more above water stuff. And um, yeah, and that's when I sort of got into this, um, it's called a, a camera bursary at the, at the BBC Natural History Unit. So they kind of take on a really junior camera operator um, who's already sort of, who's already shot, you know, maybe some parts of sequences or, or whole sequences in, in my case, I guess. Um, and they sort of train them up to be a, you know, a full camera operator basically. And, and for me, it was very much about doing more above water stuff. And so, yeah, I got to work with some really, you know, top camera people in the industry. They've been doing it for, for 20 years and got to learn a heck of a lot from them, you know, little tricks of the trade and stuff got to see a lot of interesting places i was away pretty much the, the whole year in, in different places um you know peru and sub-antarctic the antarctic um all, all over the shop and um yeah it was an amazing time and i guess that you know going back to your question about how camera technology has changed um i've been in i've been in the industry i guess for a bit under eight years and so maybe it's not as I don't see maybe quite as big a change as someone that's been in it for 20 years, let's say, but, but, you know, sort of looking back at how things were done, maybe a few years before I even started, it was very much more, it was more, I guess, more simple technologically in, in a way, maybe that's, that's a very basic way of thinking of it and because I wasn't there, but, um, but it was um, a lot more, you know, like the, the stuff that was done above water would be very much like just a, a long lens on a tripod. You know, that was how the vast majority of things were shot. And, and to be, to be fair, like that is still how a lot of things are shot above water, but, um, but it, there has been so much more technology brought into it in probably the last 10 years or so. So with the advent of things like drones um, you know, allowing cameras to move basically wherever you want them to move. Like drones have been such a game changer. And that was really only like they were starting to be around in Blue Planet 2, but they didn't really take off until just after Blue Planet 2. So that was something that has pretty much come about since I've been in the industry. And then um, the other big thing is gimbal stabilized cameras. So basically, you know, a piece, piece of technology that just like allows the, the camera, you know, if you're like walking around with it or mounting it on a car keeps the camera perfectly stable. So you've got this beautiful stable image even when you're moving along with, with the camera. Um, and now there's these huge ones that, um, you know, that they weigh about 30 or 40 kilos, something like that. And they can stabilize a 50 to a thousand millimeter lens. So, so that the lens that's typically put on a tripod and a tripod head is in this huge big gimbal that you can attach to the side of a car, onto a boat, on a helicopter. And so you can film these animal behaviors from, you know, tens or hundreds of meters away, tens of meters really. And um, from this moving platform, so you can get these amazing moving shots. Um, and and, the, and the, the, you know, the, the camera that you have on a, a small drone is exactly the same thing, just on a smaller scale. You know, it's got a little gimbal on there that's correcting for the movements of the drone and keeping that camera stable. So yeah, there's definitely been some technological advances for sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, both those pieces of technology that you mentioned have been absolute game changers. I mean, I've tried to do a little bit of video work and 
just trying to do anything moving without a gimbal is basically not an impossible. And then, you know, you mentioned the drone, you know, the shots that we can get nowadays of like the wildebeest migration or whales or sharks from above the water are, are just incredible. But uh, but you mentioned Blue Planet too, and you obviously you worked on that and Our Planet, A Perfect Planet. And all of these are, of course, David Attenborough documentaries. So I couldn't ask you, have you met the man? And if so, how was it? <laughs> yeah, I, I have only only once. And it was actually the very first program I worked on that David Attenborough's Great Barrier Reef. Um, he actually came up to my home to, to Lizard Island. So I was pretty, pretty honoured <laughs> about. Um, not not for me, obviously, but um. So they were filming a couple of sequences up there and um, I got, I was super junior at that stage. I was kind of just running around and doing whatever people needed me to do, you know, fetch David Attenborough cups of tea and things like that. <laughs> and, um, and it was just amazing. He is such an incredible man. I felt so lucky to meet him. Um, and he was just everything that I hoped that he'd be. Um, you know, you sort of, you think, Oh, you know, you, I don't know. Actually, I haven't really met that many other famous people, but but I, I sort of think that you know you see their their personas on TV and you think, oh, is is that actually what you know the kind of person they are? And and yeah, he is every bit of that, at least from what I saw. He's super interested in the topics that he's talking about. So there was there was one I remember he's doing a little piece on crown-of-thorn starfish, which eat coral. And he was, I remember seeing him, you know, the producer gave him his script probably only about an hour before he was going to film this piece to camera. He sat down and he put his little glasses on, he got his red pen out and he started, <laughs> you know, crossing out bits and rewriting bits. And, and I was lucky enough to be sitting there with him. And I, I knew a bit about Crown of Thorns. I'm not a Crown of Thorns expert, but I, I know a bit about them. And, uh, you know, he asked me a couple of questions. Like, oh, Alex, you know, is this is this true? And you know, could you say this? And and he really cares about what he's saying. He's not just like handed this thing and you know just you know reads it out. And um, yeah, and then he was talking to a whole bunch of other scientists at the research station, really interested in what they were doing. So yeah, that was. I felt very lucky to, to meet the big man. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very happy that you said he's a nice guy. I think this podcast probably be cancelled <laughs> if you came on and, and lifted the curtain that he's really horrible or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so obviously, I mean, to a lot of people, you have what would seem like a dream job. And I'm sure it is. But I'm sure that it doesn't come without its difficulties. Um, harsh weather conditions, I would imagine, would be one. Have you experienced some bad weather? And if so, what was it and where was it? Oh, let me think. I've um, so well, one of the, I guess, the more interesting sort of weather bits that I've experienced was on the crossing of the Drake's Passage, so from Antarctica back to South America. Um, we didn't actually have terrible weather; like it was just sort of moderate weather for the Drake's Passage, and it's this body of water. It's like renowned as some of the like the worst weather and waves and storms in the world, basically. So it was kind of moderate for the drake's passage but we we're in i think the smallest boat that commercially goes down there and um and yeah so i don't know maybe i should know how long it is. it's a sailing boat but it's pretty small it was about five of us on board and that was you know it was pretty full with that number and it's about a 10-day trip from antarctica back to south america and like i'm i'm not good with seasickness i'm not bad with it i'm somewhere in the middle i'd say and pretty much i think both myself and the director on there 
we were just in our bunks the entire time. You're just like getting rocked back and forth and trying not to fall out of your bunk. <laughs> you occasionally like surface for air and go and talk to Kirsten, the amazing skipper who's steering and then throw up into a bucket for a moment and then, and then go back then go back down to your bunk <laughs> and, you know, just continue lying there and, and trying not to, yeah, be sick in your sheets. Um, so that was, that was one of the probably the like less, fun weather experiences I've had um but that said it was still an amazing experience I'm glad that I, I'm glad that I got to do it um but I don't know if I'd have to do it too many times <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't I haven't had like it weather's like I haven't had too many well actually no there was one other time when we were filming chinstrap penguins down in Antarctica and um myself and the other camera guy um we wanted to go and film them well part of the sequence was to film them in a storm basically so we had to walk for about a kilometer no, sorry for about an hour from the argentinian sorry spanish space we were staying at over to the penguin colony and it goes over the top of this like quite quite high ridge and so it was a really stormy day everyone else was staying in the base and we sort of talked about it. It was really windy. We're like, okay, let's let's give this a go. It's snowing pretty hard outside. And the first bit of the walk was was okay. Like it's pretty flat. And then we sort of started climbing up this ridge, basically. I guess like it's just getting more and more exposed because you're getting higher and the wind's just getting stronger and stronger. And it's just it's pretty it's a wide out basically. And you know, we're getting to the point where we feel like you know, if, if the wind gets too much stronger, we're going to get blown off the, 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 the ridge, basically. And, uh, and that's right. We've been going downwind sort of on the flat bit on the way there. So we turned around because we're like, no, nah, this is crazy. Because it, it got even steeper on the other side. And we thought, no, nah, this is just dangerous now. So we turned around and started walking back. And the walk back, I don't know, I guess we were walking into, I don't know what it was, maybe 40 knots of wind or something, and just like driving snow. And, uh, and it was a very very slow walk back like you're just kind of leaning into it basically um we were absolutely fine but um i'm quite glad we turned around when we when we did but um yeah i've never had <laughs> never had any more well there's a few other few other little ones but those are two memorable ones anyway and i guess on the i guess on the flip side of that would be i mean obviously we see you know these incredible sequences on telly but I know how long they take to fill when there must be a lot of boredom. How roughly, I mean, it's probably going to vary depending on what it is, but roughly how long does it take to get, say, a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes of footage? How long does that take you in the field to get? And also, how do you deal with that boredom if, if it is boring at times? Yeah. So the, the rule of thumb is that it's about a week in the field for a minute on screen for something like you know, <laughs> blue, blue planet two that's or seven crazy worlds. that is crazy yeah. man <laughs> yeah it is crazy and that's that's for it's probably around that or slightly less for underwater it's probably more weeks than that for above water for topside i'd say you tend to have to wait for a bit longer and my, my longest wait ever, which is also one of my most unsuccessful shoots ever, um, we were trying to film this really cool story of this, um, this cat called an ocelot leaping on, on macaws um, at this salt lick in, um, in Peru. And so a salt lick is kind of like this, this bank of the river that's been washed away. It's made of clay 
and lots of birds and lots of parrots, including macaws, huge, beautiful parrots come in and they, and they eat sort of the, the, the clay off the side of, of the riverbank because it's, it's good for their digestion, I believe. And, and there was this one particular ocelot that, so an ocelot is like a small jaguar, basically, had seemed like it had learned to like leap off the side of this cliff onto these macaws and catch them and eat them which just looked incredible. And there was a few videos online um, of tourists that had seen this happen. Um, they had filmed it on their iPhones or on their, their DSLR. And, um, and so we wanted, we wanted to film this. And, uh, and the director had been out there, done sort of a you know, reconnaissance of it. He'd only been out there for a few days and he saw the cat twice walking around the, the clay lick. So it looked really good. It looked like, yep, this is great. This is going to be brilliant. So I went out there for, for six weeks and was sitting in a hide. Luckily, only part of the time was in a very small hide that sort of is in a bog and, you know, not that comfy. Most of it was in quite a big hide, like a tourist hide. So it wasn't super uncomfy. But, yeah, six weeks, never saw the cat. Not the entire time. Just waited for six weeks and saw nothing, basically. Like saw the macaws every day. They'd come down. You have to be – they'd probably come down for maybe – three hours a day something like that maybe a bit less and so you you have to be really focused when the macaws were on the this on the clay lick because this cat could jump at any second and like it would just happen like that like you, you probably wouldn't even see it happen so yeah so that's one of the really cool bits of technology that they've got on cameras now that's a real game changer it's called pre-roll and so it's it's basically constantly recording say you can set it to say 15 seconds and then it's dumping that footage and so when you press record it will have recorded everything 15 seconds before you press record and everything afterwards so you could have these cameras sort of trained up on you know the groups of macaws and um and know that if you know the cat jumped you could press record and you would have actually got it jumping but yeah never saw it and like came up with all of these crazy explanations of what happened to it. Like it died or just decided it didn't like macaws anymore. And yeah, so that was, that was or just camera shy, maybe six weeks, just camera shy. Yeah. Maybe it didn't like us. Maybe we smelt too bad. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what it was. Uh, so, I mean, that was obviously a piece of animal behavior that you didn't get to witness, but I'm sure there's many more over the years that you have done. Are there any that stand out to you at all? I think, Probably one of the most amazing things I've seen was actually I, I filmed at home up on Lizard is this um is these sharks that that beach themselves in order to catch little fish. It was in um filmed it for Perfect Planet on the BBC. And um yeah, it's incredible. These these black tip reef sharks, they're not huge, they're maybe a meter, meter and a half long. They come together in these packs, maybe ten of them, and they team up with these trevally or jackfish that are maybe you know as long as your arm or something and they um they attack these huge big schools of bait fish right on the shore so the trevally go in first and then the, they like charge into this school and the bait fish try to escape the trevally by going into the super duper shallow so like maybe one or two centimeters deep of water sort of the wash zone of the waves but then the black tip sharks this pack of them like comes in after the trevally just powering through these shallows and then like completely beach themselves they like launch themselves a meter or so up the beach you know five of them at once or something 
just like chomping their mouths the whole time through these bait fish. Um, so that was pretty epic. And, and, and the way we, you know, part of the way I was filming it was with a gimbal. So just like running along the beach right next to these sharks and there's, there's, you know, sand and water flying everywhere and sharks and fish flying everywhere. <laughs> and it was, um, it's pretty intense. Um, so that's one of the coolest things I've seen. That again was another big wait, you know, you'd wait for three days sitting there the whole time watching, sitting, watching the bait fish see maybe some sharks come by and nothing happens and then maybe for if you're lucky for five or ten minutes every three days to a week they would actually attack and then you'd get these 10 minutes of crazy action so yeah yeah and it's just all that waiting just for that one one shot or one sequence of shots that makes it worth it i've I think I've experienced it on a much smaller scale, of course, doing wildlife photography. Uh, speaking of which, actually, I have my bucket list of things that I want to photograph. And right at the top of that is being in the water with whales, man. I know that's something that you've experienced. How was it, man? Oh, man. Yeah. And I've, by the way, I've seen your pictures and they're awesome. Like, I, I really love them. No, oh, thank they're you, brilliant. Um, yeah, that, I have been in the water with whales. I was very lucky I got to do this sequence on... Um, on southern right whales for seven worlds one planet and um that was down in this sub-antarctic island group called the auckland islands and it's this place where southern right whales um mums come with their calves and it's a population that was decimated by whaling it was brought down to like i think 30 females and now it's back up to you know thousands of individuals so it's actually a really a good news story for wildlife but it's just it's packed with mums and baby whales and so, yeah, we were filming this story that is about how they've sort of, you know, bounced back from whaling and um, was underwater with them. And it's, it's just one of the most, you know, amazing experiences being down there with something. I think that they weigh up to 80 tonnes, the southern right whale. So they're, you know, size of a bus kind of thing. And you might have five or six of them all around you. And they are the, just the most gentle sort of considerate animals you know i remember there's this one shot that's actually in in the sequence and um sitting there like holding the camera pointing at this whale that's that's going past and there's there's one that is like sliding right past me i'm looking at another one underneath it and i can see it's it's fin on its side it's pectoral fin like coming towards me and the pectoral fin's like the size of the table and so i'm thinking oh my goodness like this is going to take my head off I'm sitting there and like, you know, one of the biggest things about camera work is keeping the, the camera stable. So I'm like, just keep holding the shot. Just keep it stable because it looked amazing. I'm just like, please don't hit me in the head. Please don't hit me in the head. And like, it's just coming along. And as it gets to me, it just like, just tucks its fin in into its side and just completely avoids me. So this, you know, 60, 80 ton thing knows exactly where like every bit of its body is and just how to avoid you uh yeah it was very special one 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 other thing that happened there was um i actually kind of accidentally like bounced off the stomach of a whale basically um which was a weird which was a weird feeling <laughs> like a whale trampoline so i'm sitting there like filming sort of slightly up a whale going above me and um and i must have been slowly sinking or it just came up under me and i just remember just this feeling of like like sort of just slowly going into this sort of like trampoline feeling thing with my back and you could feel the like you can always feel the thick blubber which i think is you know maybe 10 centimeters thick and then it's a bit sort of softer underneath 
And so I just like sunk into this whale's stomach and it just slowly slid past me and then I kind of just bounced off it. And it, it didn't like, like it would have, I think, come up to me probably and known exactly where I was because they're, they're quite tactile. They like touching things basically and just seeing what things are. But yeah, they were just very gentle the entire time. So yeah, very lucky to see them. Yeah, sounds like an incredible, incredible experience. I have one more story that I want to ask you about. I don't really know how to segue into it, so I'm just going to ask you. Uh, was there That's an issue? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite, I'm not that professional yet. I just, you know. Um, so there was there a story in Peru when you were filming Perfect Planet to do with fire ants, and if so, what happened there? Yeah, so that was a really interesting shoot. Um, so I was there with another cameraman named John Brown and the director, Toby Nolan, and a really nice scientist, Sean Connolly. And um, we, um, we, yeah, it was a really interesting shoot. Sort of, it was a great shoot. It went really well, but everything that kind of could go wrong sort of did go wrong. <laughs> so for starters, so we were filming this sequence in the flooded forest in Peru. So it's, it's a, you know, a normal forest but for you know some months of the year you know there's these huge heavy rains and basically the water level comes up so that pretty much all of the forest is underwater and there's only very tiny little patches of land left um, and most of it's just like tree trunks with you know a few meters of water underneath them so we were staying in this this little these little huts in the forest um, on one of the few pieces of dry land that was left and what that means is you know the forest is Full of right of mice and rats like all these rodents so they just like converge from miles around this one little piece of dry land which is where we were staying so every night where we were staying was like a, a rat safari basically you know you'd, you'd find you know six different species of rats you know you, you'd open you'd open a bag and oh there's a little little rat chewing on a cable or there's like a giant scary rat up in the corner of your room so that that was the that was the start of it, but the filming went really well. Like it was a beautiful place, and the fire ants were, were doing what we wanted to, them to do. Their sort of rafting behaviour, and um, and part of what I was doing was um was filming filming underwater, um so filming some of the the, the raft going over um un, from under under the water, and um we were told that we could only film in sort of certain areas because some areas of the forest apparently didn't have these giant electric eels in them so these things are can be six foot long tall as a person and can kill a person basically by discharging a huge big electric shock um and so we were told we couldn't film in these places so so we didn't so we filmed in some sort of slightly you know it's less than ideal locations we still got some good shots to avoid the eels and um and we we're also told that that there weren't um these spiky palm fronds in some spots and so I was like, that the water's super murky. Like you can barely see your hand in front of your face. The only way I could really get shots underwater is by sort of looking up. And then you can, it was actually quite beautiful because the water has this sort of tea color. And if the sun is shining straight through it, you can, it's quite a nice shot and looks pretty. But looking straight forward, you can't really see anything. So it was right near the end of the shoot. And I was in like a full wetsuit and um, swimming along. And I swam right into one of these incredibly spiky palm fronds and it's not just like normal little skinny spines like it's it, the spines are like little knives basically they're maybe as long as your finger and they're sort of got three sides they're pretty stocky and like 
I've had about 30 of them going to my chests and hands and, and all break off. And I sort of, as soon as that happened, I was like, Oh no, this is, this is not good. You, you know, you, you know, you, cause you know, you cut yourself or hurt yourself a little bit, not infrequently, but this felt bad. And, and, the, you know, we were around the huts as well. So, you know, there's humans and sewerage and, and like, you think, or, and, you know, and you, we were, maybe a six hour boat trip away from the nearest town, which I'm not even sure if that had a hospital in it. So you're in the middle of nowhere. And if you get these things get infected then you're in, you're in deep trouble basically. And so I got out and, um, and we start, you know, the guys are really helpful and we got, you know, tweezers and pliers and started to try and pull these like the broken thorns out of me basically and uh and we, we got maybe two out out of 30 and one of them had gone into my my wrist and it must have hit a nerve or something because i just i could hardly use my my right hand which for a camera person is or anyone really is is not great um and so it there was only maybe two days of the shoot left to go and i couldn't really use my hand anyway so we sort of made the decision for me to get um flown home early um, to get it seen to and I ended up getting the thorn cut out in, in Bristol in the UK but what like the the string of bad luck continued after I after I left because the other three guys that, that were left so you go down so we took all of our kit you know out of there or that they did in this this sort of long riverboat kind of thing that, that, they're, that they're long they're quite high and quite narrow and quite tippy <laughs> and we have a huge amount of stuff like we travel with usually around half a ton to maybe a ton of equipment, you know, the 20 to 50 Pelican cases. So it's so much stuff, all the camera stuff. And um, so they're going down the river and they, they, they go through all these small tributaries first. And they had all the equipment up on the top and they're inside this kind of enclosed boat. It goes pretty fast and, and they swing it into the main river and it really like that. They're, they're just telling me the story. It, it sort of tips right over and then it writes itself and they're like, Oh, whew, that was, that was close. And then they, they keep going along the main river cause they're, they're nearly there. Then and then they pull up to the, the dock right at the end um, this, of this river. That's just like chocolate milk and running really quite fast. And someone jumps up onto the top of this boat and like goes to one side of it. And it must've just been enough like shift of the weight that like the boat started tipping all of the cases started sliding over to that side and then the boat just flipped over. Like it just completely turned turtle and it sunk basically. So with these, you know, 30 cases of equipment and the three guys inside this enclosed cabin sunk into this chocolate water milk, like chocolate, chocolate milk water. And, uh, and these guys were like, yeah, they, they, they luckily got out. There was, I think there was an open window or it was open at the back and they managed to get out. The cases, you know, some of them sunk um, and they were getting, getting them out and then people were trying to steal them <laughs> while they were getting out. Oh, and, um, oh my about... God, even in that moment, there's people yeah. find opportunity. Jeez, I know. God. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and they got them out. And, and luckily, um, so we always have two copies of all the footage. So it, it was a really good shoot. Like apart from these things that went wrong, like it was a lovely team. The sequence went really well. And so we always have two copies of the footage. So two completely separate sets of, you know, three or four drives. And so one set of the drives was actually completely flooded in, in the, one of the Pelican cases, which leaked. 
And then luckily the director had another set in a dry bag with him, which survived. So if that, that set had gone too, if he hadn't done that, that would have been the whole shoot just for nothing, basically. But yeah, yeah, but yeah, an interesting one. Yeah. Well, interest is one way of putting it. Terrifying is another way of putting it. So I have one uh, question that I want to end the podcast on. But before that, what have you got coming up next? And if people want to find yourself, maybe Instagram or website, if you want to say that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, so at the moment I'm working on a couple of um, BBC series um, that will hopefully be narrated by David Attenborough um, and, and also a, a big Netflix series called Oceans as well. I'm not sure who that is. There you go, exclusive. you got the exclusive here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, working on a few good, good projects. I'm really enjoying it. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm on Instagram. I think it's, I'm not sure, I think it's alex.vale08. Boy, I should know that. Um, Should I find but, it for you? I got, I got, yeah, that would be oh, really good. I'll find it for you. Uh, As you can see, I'm not. Yeah, Alex Vale 08, not the dot. There we go. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> As you can see, I'm not very um, good on Instagram. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm really, yeah, just enjoying life, enjoying my job. Like it's, I, I think we, we were talking about, it is like such a wonderful job and I'm so thankful for it. I, I think that the, the main thing is that it's just, it's just so busy. Like I just, it just doesn't stop. You know, when you're out in the field, it's maybe 14, you know, hours a day, every, every day that you're out there, I'm out sort of 200 days a year. And then it's a nine to five whenever I'm back at home, pretty much just keeping up with admin. So it's, it's just, it's a lot of hours basically, but um, it's all worth it. <laughs> yeah. Totally wow. It. Yeah. So like I said, I've got one question to finish the podcast on. Um, so I might put you on the spot. I should have mentioned this before so you can think about it. I'm sorry. It's uh, <laughs> What is right. one rule, guideline or philosophy that you try and live your life by? Oh, actually, that's it's pretty, pretty easy. It's just be a good person. <laughs> um, I, I, I like like it's um, like I know that's pretty lame, but it's, um, you know, just just be nice to people, be, be good to people, treat people the way that you would love to be treated yourself and um yeah you know just accept people for whoever they are and and yeah i don't know i'm sure i don't always manage it but i think that that's just such an important thing um yeah that's probably how i and 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 have fun like that and have fun to be honest because what other point is there (laughs) (laughs) i couldn't agree more mate and what a beautiful answer alex thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today man thanks so much for having me charlie yeah and i i really hope you get to swim with whales one of these days soon (laughs) sure you'll love (laughs) it me too man me too all right thanks man Uh, thank you for listening to chatting with charlie this week i hope you enjoyed it if you did you know share with your friends follow on spotify itunes wherever you listen to your podcasts and if you could give me a five-star review it'd mean the absolute world But yeah, have a good one, guys. I'll see you next week.